We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah number 18, like Mishnah number 17. This is authored by the great Rabbi Akiva. And we'll read it quickly and we'll try to dig into this very deep message that he shares with us. Hu haya Omer, Rabbi Akiva would frequently say, Chaviva Adam Shinevra Beloved is man who, for he was created in the image of God. Chiba Yaser Nodaslo it's indicative of a greater love that it was made known to him that he was created in God's image. Not only was man created in God's image, but man was told, you were created in God's image, as the verse states, for the, in the image of God, he made man. So this is the first idea. Man is beloved above all other species because man was created in the image of God. And not only that, this was multiplied by the fact that he was told that he was created in the image of God. Number one. Number two, Chaviv in Yisrael, beloved are the people of Israel, Shenekru Banim Lamakom, because they're described as children of God. In addition, they were told that they're children of God, and that multiplies their belovedness even more. Quotes the verse, Shenemar, as it says, You are children, you are sons to Hashem, your God. And finally, Chaviv in Yisrael, Beloved of the people of Israel, that they might give us the Torah, which is a, a, a cherished vessel. An additional love, an additional beloved aspect of the Jewish people is the fact that they might gave the Jewish people the precious vessel in which he used to create the world. And he told us about it as well. So this is the idea of Rabbi Tiva. It's a very deep idea, and we have to try to understand what, what the message is. He's describing three levels of belovedness. It's a very positive message. That number one, man in general, human, humankind is beloved because we're created in the image of God. Not only that, we're told about that. The Jewish people, well, we're the chosen people, and we're described as children of God. And that's another level of, of love. And not only that, we've been told about it. Moreover, the Jewish people are beloved because we were given the Torah, the vessel in which the world was created, and we were told about that as well. So there's a few uh, important points before we dig into the particulars of this message. First of all, each one of these ideas were created in the image of God, were tr- called children of God, and we have the Torah, we have the vessel that God used to create the world, the cherished vessel. Each one of these three things, it's not just that we're beloved as a result, but we're doubly beloved because we're told about it. We're informed about it. Meaning that when the Almighty said to us, I love you, you're like my children. Or the Almighty told mankind, humankind, I love you, you're created in my image. It wasn't just that we were created in his image. We were told about it. He gave us a gift, so to speak, and he told us about it. And that increases, that multiplies the relationship that that engenders. And there's a very deep point here. What Robert was telling us is that we're special. We're special on a species-wide level, first of all. This is not limited to the Jewish people. All humans are special. All humans create the image of God. Beloved is man, not just the Jewish people. That's the first idea. If you're a human, you're special. If you're Jewish, well, then you're part of the chosen people. You're special because you're called children children to God and you, you're given the Torah. 
The message is that you're special. But then he adds, the Almighty told you about this. He told you that you're created in the Mishnah. He told you that you're his children. He told you that he gave you the Torah. Meaning that we're special, but we won't necessarily recognize that we're special. And God had to tell us. If he didn't tell us, we might not necessarily know it. Which means, to be a human, what does that mean? It means that out of the trillion species that exist on our planet, you're a human, the only one that is created in the image of God. Now, what that means is a question we're going to ponder. You're the only one that's created in the image of God. No other species is created in the image of God. Every human, the worst human possible is better than the best animal possible because you're a different level. You're created in the image of God. Animals are not. I think today, a lot of people kind of get those things mixed up. Like, why are humans special? Like, why are we eating animals? So the Torah, of course, tells us that we have to be merciful with animals. The Torah tells us that we can't cause undue, unnecessary pain. But the idea of us wearing leather shoes and leather belts, some people have a hard time, why? Why, why is that right? Why is that just? Why is that moral? And here we find the answer. Man is created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God. Animals are created by God, but not in his image. And therefore, there is a qualitative difference between humans as a species, towering above all other species, and we might not necessarily realize that. And God says, okay, I'm going to tell you this message. It's important for you to know that, number one. In addition, the Jewish nation, we're told here, we're children of God. If we weren't told it, we may think we're not that special. And in fact, if you look at it out of history, you know, the most persecuted people of all history are the Jewish people. And therefore, if you were to kind of not be given this message, you're special, you're chosen, you're the children of God, you may think that we're the ones that God dislikes the most. That's what you would think. Look at our history. Look at what's happened to us. L- look at the litany of persecutions, of expulsions, of terrible things that happened to our nation. If we weren't told this message, we wouldn't know it. We'd think we're not special. And now we have some work to do. Okay, if we are special, how did those things happen? That's kind of the next level of the question. But we are special. We're children of God. And God says, I'm going to tell it to you. Otherwise, you might not know it. In addition, Torah, here it's described as the cherished vessel that God used to create the world. If we weren't told the power of Torah, that it's a cherished vessel that God used to create the world, we might not know that. We might say, the Torah is God's tool to make me miserable, to govern every aspect of my life, to be a, a draconian system of laws that tells me all things I cannot eat. And I'm hungry, and I very much desire all these stuff that I want to eat. And we're, we kind of, we, we, we may misattribute what the Torah is, and therefore, Robert Hebert tells us, no, 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 don't get the wrong message. This is a tremendous gift that the money gave you because he loves you exceedingly. And he told you that about it. He described it to you like that because you may take the wrong message about what the nature of, of Torah is. Now, so what are, the, what are these three themes in general? And, and what's the connection to these three themes? And what are they connoting? So one of the commentators, you know, we started off chapter three in Perkevos with the teaching of Akavya ben Mahalalel. It's one of the most, maybe more depressing teachings that we've read. It's a very valuable teaching, but it's not a very inspiring one. It's a valuable teaching because it tells us 
the tools to not sin. It's not inspiring because it's telling us, you're not that great. You're not that special. You're not that unique. Your destiny is not that glorious. That's what he tells us. He tells us, Kavya says, listen, look at three things. You'll never sin. Know from where you came. Know to where you're going. And know before whom you're going to give an accounting and a reckoning. Where do you come from? What's the primordial origin of man? A putrid drop. The biological origins of your body, not that glorious. Where are you heading to? A place of worms, dust, and maggots. We're going to be buried in the ground. Then what's going to happen of our biological self? Know before whom you're going to give an accounting and reckoning? Before God. If you keep these three things in mind, you're not going to sin. So he's like, you're not that special. You came from a shameful origin. You're going to a shameful destination. And you're going to have a lot of work to do to defend yourself before God. And who are you compared to God? That's the message that we start off the chapter with. Comes along with Okay, I want to balance this out. Not only are you special, you're very, very beloved and special. You are valuable. You're a human. You're creating the image of God. Yes, of course. Both of these things are true. Our biological origin is very unimpressive. But what about our spiritual origin? What about our soul? If you're a human, by definition, you have a soul that's greater than angels. And not only that, God says, I'm going to tell you, you're creating my image. You're above the angels. This is like these the duality, the, the, the bookends of the, of the chapter are giving us this balanced message. Our body's origins, very shameful. Our soul's origins, the loftiest of the loftiest that we can fathom in the image of God. That's the counterweight. Similarly, where are we going to? We're going to a place of worms and maggots, right? But that seems to kind of denigrate who we really are and where we're going. But if we are the children of God, like the second part of our mission tells us, we're not just going to disappear into nothingness. We're not going to, our body maybe is heading into oblivion, but our soul, it's going to have continuity and vitality forever. It's children of God, so to speak. And similarly, we have to give an accounting and a reckoning before God. Well, how do we make sure that we're armed, we're prepared? The Almighty gave us this precious treasure. He gives the Torah. And the Torah is our roadmap to navigate this confrontation that we're going to have with God. So one of the commentaries says she has a very interesting idea to show that there's a certain counterweight, a certain counterbalance between the beginning of the chapter that kind of highlighted all the flaws and all the shameful parts of who we are. And now, okay, now let's focus on the other side. And those two together, that's a healthy attitude to realize that we're, we're a dichotomy, you know, where we're, com- we're composed of opposites, of things that cannot be more different, the body and the soul. And that's the conflict that we're living our lives between. We're strung between the future job as our origin and no, 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 we're creating the image of God. Those two are both true within us. We're going to a place of dust, worms and maggots. We're the children of God. We're going to have to give an accounting before God. We have the precious Torah to navigate that, that confrontation, that challenge. So what are these, what are these three themes? What is this idea of the image of God? And again, this is an interesting introduction because it, it pivots to talk about the Jewish people. The image of God is, it's universal. Remember, he was speaking to, to us, to the Jews, but he's telling us, yes, you're the chosen people, but you're also part of the chosen species. 
and that is 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 a universal thing. Every human is created in the image of God. But what does that even mean? It's a very problematic statement. The image of God doesn't have an image. It's one of the 30 principles of faith. God doesn't have an image, doesn't have any form, doesn't have any bodily character or overlap. It cannot be something which is in appearance. God has no appearance. God has no body. So when we're in the image of God, it cannot mean literally the image, the visage, the countenance of God. God doesn't have a countenance. So it can't be, mean that. Well, maybe God is intellect. We're intellect. Maybe it's kind of the more sublime levels. And that's what it means that we're creating the image of God. The problem with that is that when it says that humans are special because we're creating the image of God, it means that we're more special than angels. We're the only things that are created in the image of God. And if it was highlighting our intellect, well, you know who has greater intellect than us? Angels. And therefore, when it says that we're creating the image of God, it cannot mean that just as God has intellect, we have intellect. And consequently, it's a major discussion. One of the, one of the big questions, one of the big dilemmas of Jewish theology and Jewish philosophy is the question of understanding what exactly it means man is created in the image of God. So maybe the consensus answer, and again, this is the thing that makes us greater than angels, the consensus answer there's maybe more answers, but one of the, the, the common answers that we see amongst the commentators, amongst the commentators is that man is like God with respect to man and God being the only entities that can make choices. An angel outweighs us intellectually. But you know what an angel does not have? Conflict. Because angels just intellect. Animals, by the way, they are a lot stronger than us physically. But you know what they don't have? That intellectual component to create the conflict. There's no animal that's your size that can't rip you to shreds. They're just they're just physically they're more strong than 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 men are, than humans are. What makes humans unique is that we're half and half. We're half animal vis-a-vis our body, we're half angel vis-a-vis our soul. And that creates a hybrid existence that creates conflict, but also creates the capacity of veering to one of these sides. We could choose to favor one side. We could choose to favor the other side. We call that, on the big, big, the big scale, so to speak, we call that free will. And like the Ram says, free will exists on many different planes. There's free will on a, like an individual choice. There's free will on a more like kind of life perspective. And there's all levels in between. He says there's four different levels of, of, of free will. But the point is, is that we are a conflicted entity and therefore our destiny is not set in stone. You know, an animal is born an animal, dies an animal. An angel exists solely as an angel. It cannot choose to be anything else. A human could choose to be an animal, could choose to be an angel. And that, of course, is the big picture of what they are physiologically but that creates the ability to have free will. And what we're saying over here is that man created the image of God. God, of course, ultimately made the choice to create the world and has all the power coalesced within him to make all the choices. 
However, he created man in his image, meaning that he outsourced to man some of the decisions that happen in the world. Who decides what's happening in the world? Of course, God, but also mankind. The animals don't have a say. The angels don't have a say. Only man who's created in, the, in God's image has a say outside of God. So that's the most common idea, understanding of, of what this means. And therefore, not just Jews, all of humanity are created in the image of God. All humanity has free will. There are, there's a lot of uh, Kabbalistic undertones in this idea, man being created in the image of God. And I want to share a, a little bit of a perspective about some of these ideas. So some of the commentators tell us that man is created to resemble God. And the way it's couched is that man is the only animal or the only physical being in this world that walks erect, whereas all the animals are bowed, meaning that man originates from heaven and therefore man is trying to kind of go back to its source the animals originate from the from, from the earth, so to speak, and therefore they're going back to their source. But that kind of demonstrates a certain superiority that man has over animals. Man's the master of them. Man dominates them. Man controls them in a way that, so to speak, resembles God's dominion overall. And therefore, man is king in this world in a similar way to God being king over everything. And this is an idea, of course, that could be expanded. Uh, like our sages tell us, that if you look at man, you could understand God. And for those who are well-versed in Kabbalah, they know that uh, one of the frameworks of Kabbalah is the idea of the tense virot, which is modeled, so to speak, after a human body. Meaning that there's some sort of deep overlap with how we can understand God to the best of our ability and the humans. Now, what that means, again, I'm, I... I plead ignorance, but that's the basic framework, which is a very advanced Kabbalistic idea that is being hinted to over here by Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, of course, is the one who taught us Kabbalah, right? The Talmud tells us that there were four sages that tried to plumb the deepest, most inner sanctums of Kabbalah, and only one of them survived. One of them became a heretic, one of them went crazy, and one of them died. And Rabbi Akiva was the only one that entered peaceably and exited peaceably. So when he's sharing this idea, there is a layer of understanding that's very advanced and very mystical of man being created in the image of God. That's number one. Humans are greater than animals. That's probably the simple understanding of it. Jewish people, well, we have a filial relationship with God. God is like our father. What's What does that mean? What are the implications of that? So again, the commentaries, each one of them says their own, their own spin on what exactly this means. But for one, there is something about a blood relative that is constant. You know, you could choose who you want to marry. You could choose who you want to go into business with. You can't really undo who your parents are. You can't really undo who your children are. It's like, it's like constant. And, of course, the mitzvah that most represents the Jewish nation, the Jewish identity, is, of course, the circumcision. Which our shaders tell us is the one mitzvah that is implanted within us, 
you take it off all man's clothing, they still have that with them. And that's kind of to represent the idea of constantness. Just like a child is constantly the child of this, of the father, we're constantly have a relationship with God. There's no way to sever that relationship. It's a very deep idea. In addition, if you have a child and the child misbehaves or the child acts in an improper fashion, there's a lot of things you could do, but one thing you can't do is make them not your child. So not only is it constant, it's independent of our behavior. Any other relationship, it can be undone. This relationship can never be undone, irrespective of, of behavior. Moreover, this is kind of the next level, that a child and a father are similar because they're part of the same family. There's a kind of a genetic link between them. What we're saying over here, again, a very advanced idea that the Jewish nation has some sort of spiritual overlap with, with God. We're similar to God, which is a very deep idea. Just like a child is similar to the, to the father, the Jewish nation in their spiritual sensitivity, in their spiritual acuity, in the message they're trying to impart in the world is similar to God. When Abraham arrived at the scene, the forefather, of course, the Jewish people, what, what did he start doing? He started disseminating the idea of God in the world. In effect, he's continuing creation. God created the world and presented sufficient evidence of his existence, but not in a way that's undeniable. And the objective was for the Jewish people or whoever would emerge, someone to emerge to continue God's work. Comes along Abraham and he starts continuing God's work. And therefore, just like God exposed God in the world, Abraham exposed God in the world. There's there's an intimate connection. And that is not only Abraham, it's Abraham's descendants. And therefore, we can be aptly described as the children of God as people who are continuing to do what he started. And finally, we have the Torah. The Torah is a cherished vessel that God used to create the world and that he gave to us. So what exactly does this mean? We have, again, a variety of particular examples to express this idea from the various commentators. So, for example, the Rabbeinu Yonah tells us that it means three different things. Number one, the tool that God used to create the world was the Torah. Number two, the objective of the world was so that people should obey the Torah. Number three, that everything in the world is there to aid either directly or by extension the people that are upholding the Torah and studying it, which is a very advanced idea. It might sound a little bit, you know, you can see how people can take it the wrong way. Everything in the world was created solely to help those that are studying Torah. Not directly, but indirectly, which is a very, a very powerful idea. But generally speaking, what does this mean that we were given the tools that God used to create the world? In effect, God created the world and the tools that he used, the keys, so to speak, to creation, he gave to us. And that's not random. Abraham says, okay, I want to continue doing creation. I want to finish the job, so to speak. And again, there's an internal continuity here. Man has free will, therefore only man 
can do the work of God. Only man's in the image of God. That's point number one. Point number two, well, who, who stepped up to the plate? Abraham. And therefore, Abraham is continuing God's work. He's like the child of God. And therefore, his people that he spawned, they're going to be the ones who are going to continue his work. Well, how are they going to do it? They're going to do it because they were given the keys that God used to create the world. They're going to be given those same keys to finish the creation, to complete the creation, to bring about the perfection. Now, this has some perks. If you have the blueprint, if you have the keys to creation, well, then creation is subject to you. So there's many examples of this concept in Jewish literature. But the sages in the Talmud, for example, were given all kinds of stories of how to do miracles. How, how do you do a miracle? A miracle, by definition, is changing the laws of nature. The laws of nature are fixed, right? Right? That's what you would think. Yes, they are, unless you have the keys. If you have the keys to the back end, then you can change the rules. And therefore, a miracle is a manifestation of the keys to creation being utilized. If God gives us those keys, God gives us the Torah that he used to create the world, then we too have the ability to manipulate it as we desire. There's many, many examples uh, to that effect, not only in antiquity, but in modern times, we have the master key. And this is a, a very, very advanced idea that Adam was very desirous of those keys. He was not given them. Adam was not given those keys. Only Abraham and his descendants subsequently at Sinai, only we have those keys. Adam was great. But if you look at the Hebrew, Chaviv Adam, Adam is still on level one. He's beloved. He's creating God's image. He has the ability to, to, to make decisions, to make free will decisions, but it's limited. He's not beloved by God, so to speak. He's not his child. And he wasn't given the precious gift that God used to create the world. And therefore, he cannot create the world on his own. He, we have to wait someone like Abraham to be able to seize those keys and get to work. But what does that mean for us? For us, that means that we have the ability to create new worlds, abilities that Adam did not have. Adam had a keener grasp on the whole universe. There was no man in history that was as advanced in level one as Adam was. So, for example, say so just tell us that Adam was able to name all the species. How did he name the species? He was able to understand their essence and therefore he was, to a certain degree, even wiser than angels. He's in the image of God at the most prominent example of that. Even the angels were so impressed with him, they tried to worship him, but he was still lacking. Why does he sin? Why does he capitulate to the serpent? It's because he wanted something more. He wanted an advanced level. He wanted Torah. and He didn't have it. And the only way that he thought he could get it is is via the sin. So it's a very advanced idea, like we said, but he was telling us here that the most precious vessel, the tools that God used to create the world, was given to us. I think if the only thing we take away from that is a reframing of what Torah is, it's a very powerful lesson. But what it's also showing us, the incredible power that our small nation has if you compare us numerically to the rest of the world, 
were infinitesimally insignificant, were less than the margin of error of the margin of error. That's what we are. Yet what he's telling us is that everything really is about us. The whole world is waiting for us to make our move because we're the only ones that have the key. And you know what? If if there's only one person that has the key, there could be a billion people that don't have the key. It doesn't matter. They are not as powerful as the one man with the key, our nation. Of course, thanks to Abraham, thanks to our history, we're beloved, we're children of God, we're, we're going to live forever, we're going to exist forever, and we're going to be the ones to bring about what we call Messiah, bring about the perfection of the world. How are we going to do that? Via the tool of creating the world via the Torah.